Welcome to New Generation, an insider's guide to a clean energy future. I'm Elena Mannion. I'm a senior research analyst at American Efficient, and I'm joined by my co-host, Pete Curtis, who is the CEO of American Efficient. Hi, Pete. Hi, Elena. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Tom Ritigliano. Tom's a senior advocate at the Sustainable FERC project. There he works to ensure that our wholesale power grid supports clean energy. And his particular focus is on the PJM interconnection, which is the grid that covers the Mid-Atlantic and parts of the Midwest. Sustainable FERC is actually a project of a coalition of groups that's housed at the Natural Resources Defense Council, also known as NRDC. Prior to joining NRDC, Tom worked in the private sector, helping to integrate new technology into the wholesale power markets. He holds a bachelor's in philosophy from the Eugene Lang College and a master's in energy and environmental policy from the Harvard Kennedy School. Tom, welcome to New Generation. Thanks, Pete. Really excited to be here. Let's, let's jump in. So most folks have heard of NRDC, certainly folks that would generally listen to this podcast, but, but most probably have not heard of the Sustainable FERC project. Can you tell us a little bit about why there's a need for this coalition and how big the team is? Yeah, absolutely, Pete. Thanks for asking. And also, good morning, Elena. Um, morning. So the question why there's a Sustainable FERC project, of course, will start and end with what FERC does. I, I noticed that you had Commissioner Kelly as your first guest on the podcast. So your, your listeners will probably be pretty well informed about that. But, you know, to not be too dramatic, you know, FERC is where most energy policy in this country is going to be planned and implemented and operated on a day-to-day basis. You know, I think someone, it might be Senator Kasten, has described FERC as the most important federal agency nobody's heard of. And in terms of energy issues, at least that's true very much the the technocracy of the energy industry, a lot of it happens in areas that are FERC regulated, which is why it's an important space for environmentalists to be in. Originally, when Sustainable FERC was founded about 25 years ago, there were two main tracks. One is about natural gas and pipelines, which I don't focus on, but FERC does regulate. And there were some really I think you can fairly describe them as abusive things happening to landowners around the construction of natural gas pipelines, which we've been involved in, continue to be involved in, up until the policy declaration you saw earlier this year on, on how FERC evaluates climate change and natural gas, which clearly ran into its own issues. But most of our work, at least by headcount, is on the electricity side. Originally, it was about opening up the industry to clean energy, trying to break utility monopolies that impeded progress. As time's gone on, a consensus seems to have grown, or at least a rough one, that the the path to fighting climate change is electrify everything, decarbonize electricity, right? That puts the power grid right at the center of this all. So that's why we think we need a sustainable FERC project. Ultimately, our goal on the electricity side is to build a power grid that supports a decarbonized economy. There's um, about a dozen of us right now on, at NRDC who's, who are officially sustainable for project workers. But as you mentioned, we're a coalition of environmental groups housed at NRDC, which really just means the sort of nonprofit infrastructure is, of NRDC is what supports us. Um, there's, like I said, about a dozen of us, and we are hiring, by the way, we have a few open positions, but our real strength is the, the 50 or so people at our member organizations who don't have sustainable FERC in their job titles, but work with us closely when FERC matters impact issues important to them. 
Can you explain to us the concept of resource adequacy and why is it something that Sustainable FERC thinks about? Yeah, thanks. That's a, a great and really timely question. Reliability is the most important thing. In electricity world, that's almost the central dogma. Like the other central dogma is load pays. That's a, maybe a different conversation. But you know, joking aside, if you start working in the sort of inside game in electricity, people really actually do take that seriously. You know, when I first joined in the first couple of years, it really impressed me how everyone across the board, whoever you're working for, all see themselves as serving a common goal of a reliable electric grid. And so resource adequacy is a part of reliability. It's the part that makes sure there's enough power available at all times. Right? The nature of electricity, even with storage, is that if supply and demand are out of sync by more than a few percent for a few seconds, you start to have problems with the electric grid, and those can sometimes escalate quickly. So resource adequacy is fundamentally a planning function about making sure your resources and your expected demand for electricity will will match up reasonably well, even under not quite worst case scenarios, but you know nearly all the time. So that's why it's important now. We think about it sustainable for for two reasons. The the first one you might call the defensive one that there's a, a saying, uh, reliability is the last refuge of scoundrels, which has some truth in the electric industry, right? Reliability, for all that it is. But, you know, again, I think sincerely held by most people to be so important is also a thing that you can cover a lot of extra costs under. And we found that that hasn't changed. Resource adequacy is often used as a cover for a lot of hidden subsidies for fossil fuel. The more constructive reason we care is that we're trying to build a very low carbon, eventually zero carbon grid, which involves a lot of really new technologies. And they have very different reliability characteristics than the old ones. You know, with, with steam power, whether it's nuclear, coal, gas, they're dispatchable. When they're running, they tend to run at near 100%. You turn them on and off and up and down, right? It's a very controllable system, and a certain set of how you plan for that has evolved. Renewables are different. Storage is different. So while resource adequacy remains critical, you've got to update that field to deal with the new technologies we're bringing into the grid. Again, the most important thing is that we do that right. You know, in the end, resource adequacy is one of the pacing challenges for decarbonization and that we can't decarbonize faster than we know how to run a reliable low power grid. Luckily, at the highest level, we know how to do that. That is not the unsolved problem that, you know, fossil fuel apologists will tell you. And then there's also a public relations battle, which I guess I just hinted at, right, that you'll see a lot of disinformation out there, you know, often from people who think they're the first ones who realize the sun goes down at night about how it's like impossible to run a grid on mostly renewables. So we have both a communications effort and a, a more technocratic one to be on the inside game, making sure that the people who plan the power grid are making sure they credit renewables exactly right. They don't count them as being worth less than they are, but they're also making sure that we don't have a renewables blackout. What are some ways that you all combat the PR issue around it? Like, how do you convince people that you can, we can operate on renewables? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. The, the PR one is hard. I mean, we still use, I guess, what you might call traditional advocacy techniques. You know, you get your facts right, always tell the truth. Try to fight the disinformation just at the level of rebutting it. 
you know, I'd, I'd love to see us get more proactive and start really articulating the story of how the power grid is run and how it will work as we switch to lower, lower carbon resources. You know, the main thing is communicating both to policymakers and the public that all machines are fallible, right? Old power plants would also break down or not start when you ask them to. So reliability is a statistical matter. It always has been and it always will be. And that, the, the details of that change sometimes pretty dramatically when you're looking at, say, you know, wind and solar compared to nukes and coal. But the ultimate question of how you take a giant portfolio of individually unreliable resources and turn them into a reliable system hasn't changed. And so if anything, I think we want to communicate that to the outside world that this is not a problem people haven't been thinking about. The engineers who run the power grid know how to solve this. And, you know, we're going to take this at the right pace, but we can do it. Well, you know, speaking of all that, Tom, in September of 2020, FERC issued Order 2222, which was meant to hopefully accelerate and codify a lot of the problems associated that, that you just mentioned. So and I think it, it aims to make it easier for businesses and homeowners to put these renewable sources on their roofs or EV chargers in their garages. And it requires these utilities that, as you mentioned, sometimes might hide behind reliability as, as a veil, so to speak, uh, requires them to make their power lines and equipment available to renewables and to compensate businesses and homeowners for their generation. So as, as, you, as you think about that and the reliability of the grid as, as being central, obviously, what does 2022 solve in that ecosystem and what are the remaining challenges and opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. Another great question. 2222 is a really interesting order and it's, it's just the start of what's really a very promising process. What 2222 specifically speaks to is distributed energy resources. So I'll, I'll let myself introduce one acronym in this conversation. It'll be DERs, which are, are smaller resources, right? Things much smaller than traditional power plant. You know, it could be anything from, you know, on the larger end, let's say the solar cells on the top of a big warehouse down to an electric vehicle in someone's driveway. So it mandates that wholesale power markets again, the, the high voltage stuff that allow distributed energy resources to participate up to the, their full technical capability. Basically, it says there can't be arbitrary barriers to distributed resources participating in the electricity system. Okay, now that's, that's a little dry, but to what makes it exciting for the environmental community is when you say integrated, that means that all of their abilities can be used to meet the needs of the power grid. It's about enabling coordination as much as anything else from, if you will, from the policy side. Certainly from the individual participant side, it's about getting access and getting paid. But what that all rolls up into is getting large scale new resources on. Um, in particular, we're most excited about electric vehicles because storage is a fantastic resource for a grid operator because it's so flexible. It does exactly what you want in milliseconds. You know, it really, it's no exaggeration to say it's the analog to digital switch for the electricity industry in terms of just how controllable and responsive they are. You know, and, and so on this kind of ever going public relations fight, you'll see a lot of disinformation out there about how electric vehicles will be too much of a burden for the grid and we can't electrify transportation because we can't support them, which is so wrong it's painful because as we get electric vehicles out there, what we're actually seeing is 
the most premium flexible resource the grid has being built at scale. And what 2222 does is close that gap and potentially, we're not there yet, turns all of those batteries sitting all over the country into just this vast flexible thing that lets the power grid work really well with renewables, right? Batteries and renewables are a great combo. Yeah, that's the part that I that I always found odd about pushback of electric vehicles is because I, if you take it to its sort of elemental level, I thought the whole game was how flat can you get demand, right? So how how could you make the utopia is could you make demand flat across a grid for twenty four hours, and because it's the peaks that are the problems, right. right? And I think EVs and big batteries don't totally solve that problem, but over time make that a problem much less acute. So a lot more total demand, but not much more peak demand. That's a, a great way to put it. And actually, interestingly, it points back to the resource adequacy changes. And classically, right, in the days of traditional power plants, your ideal load would just be basically constant 24 hours a day, because that would work really well for you know coal plants and so on, or just and most traditional power plants. With renewables now, your ideal load would be one that matches the weather, right? That follows renewable output, which is really what the storage and the EVs, and in general, the coordination of DERs that 2222 promises lets us do. In the utopia now, what you have is electric vehicles all across the country that the runner says, hey, I, I need you to be charged by 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. You figure it out. And the grid operator is looking at wind forecasts and other industrial load and just matching up all of the sources of power with all the need for charging and getting it done overnight. While at the same time, those vehicles are sitting there, the ones that are fully charged are ready to step in as reserves if, you know, a gas power plant breaks or, you know, the weather's unexpectedly cold. So it it gets us to this really exciting what the low carbon future looks like. You'd asked about challenges and there are still a lot. 2222, I mentioned, only gets us halfway there because it covers the wholesale market, but you have what you might call the last mile problem. For historical reasons, the electricity regulatory space in the U.S. is fragmented. The federal government regulates the transmission lines and what you'll call the wholesale stuff, companies selling to each other. But then the distribution lines, the ones that go to houses and businesses and retail, which are sales for consumption, are generally regulated by the states, although even that's not simple. So 2222 got the wholesale market ready, but for DERs, obviously that last mile really matters. And every state and municipal utility and co-op and power authority is going to have to figure that one out on its own. So the, the biggest challenge we have here is that part. Let's just to simplify it, let's say your state regulators and your, your local utilities, the one that sends you your bill, have to do their part to make sure the DERs work also. They're the ones that you actually work with or the, you know, the person who's showing up with tools to get the DERs hooked up has to interface with. So they still have a lot of possibilities to block things. The feds can't force states to do this part. But what the feds can do is force the states to do it in a non-discriminatory way. And it, once they let you plug in, the feds can say, okay, now that you're plugged in, you have to have the same access to all these markets as a full-fledged power plant. So it's going to become a local, you know, the, the regulatory equivalent of street fighting. The DER problem is going to have to be solved jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Do, do you have any thoughts on what jurisdictions or areas of the country would be 
able to move more quickly than others based on their regulatory framework or their, or their unique needs? Well, that's a really interesting question. In the end, I think it's going to be progressive legislators will be the ones that, that push it forward the quickest, and that will be probably the most obvious. You know, so you'll see, for instance, New York and California, because they've got you know, ambitious climate goals and their legislators tend to, you know, clearly been hearing from people who want the EVs to work. You know, it's going to be other places where the political will is created to make that happen. You know, I could easily see that being areas around auto manufacturing, for instance, that want to encourage uptake of electric vehicles and so on. But otherwise, in terms of regulatory structure, yeah, I don't, you know, you've got investor-owned utilities, munis and co-ops, and various power authorities. I wouldn't say any one of them is structurally better off to solve it. It's going to come down to like institution, almost personality sometimes. You know, some utilities really embrace the future and some are, some are fighting to hold on to the past. So maybe that's unsatisfying, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's great, thank you. <laughs> Let's talk about demand-side resources. PJM leadership has put out statements about the role of demand response in PJM. And similarly, former FERC chairman Neil Chatterjee has talked about it um, with respect to MISO. Historically, there's been a focus on generation. What do you see as the opportunities and challenges for demand side resources like demand response and energy efficiency in the coming years as more folks um, start to focus on it? Yeah, get it. Great question. Um, it, it's so good that you started this off with the resource adequacy conversation because so much comes back to that. You know, so as you mentioned, demand response is kind of a blanket term for consumption of electricity being adjusted one or another in response to need or market conditions. And historically, that's been seen as kind of an emergency resource. To, to Pete's earlier observation that ideally you want flat load and the peaks of the problem, demand response has addressed that. The classic demand response program, for instance, is pay people to let the utility turn their air conditioners down if there's a shortage of electricity and that, that sort of thing. And that's been you know, reasonably well-developed in the United States. I think it's probably reached something like its economic equilibrium point. You know, in most markets in the US now, you can get paid about the same to commit to turning your air conditioner down as a new power plant developer will get paid for their ability to serve peaks. So there's, you know, not a structural bias in favor of one or the other. But what the, the challenge is for DR is to move past that, you know, in case of emergency break glass model and into something similar to the way I was talking about EVs that's more dynamically integrated at the power grid, right? Can, can follow the renewables around, you know, I can, easily dream about a lot of load that, imagine industrial load, say rock grinders, for instance, when I was doing private sector DR, we loved quarries because they have these gigantic machines that grind rock that they don't really care when they grind the rock as long as they've got a big enough pile of it sitting there. And so you can imagine in the future that, you know, your rock grinder runs whenever the, it's a sunny, windy day and there's all this cheap power around, grind your rock for free and make sure you're not doing it at other times. And so the more of the economy we can get working like that, the better. One of the interesting things about a high renewable grid is that in a lot of scenarios, the, the right way to do it is overbuild the renewables, have more there than you actually need for peak load. And that way in the hours when they're running it, you know, 50% or whatever, you've got enough power and it just sort of spreads out. One of the 
implications of that is that for much of the time, power is going to be really cheap. There'll actually be too much renewable power out there and they'll have to curtail them, which we already see happening in some places, right? And I believe in like windy days in the sort of north central, northern Midwest, they'll have to tell the wind plants to ramp down. And so once that becomes more commonplace and industries start to internalize it, you get to this model of DR that's about chasing the free energy for anyone who can. So I think that's the challenge we're going to see for DR, right? The, the grid operators, like you mentioned, how um, Manu, PJM CEO, talked about concerns with DR. His concerns, which I think are fair, are that it's working well now as this every couple of years emergency resource, but are our current programs and resources going to hold up as we start trying to use it more often as something more flexible? So I think that's the challenge we're going to see for the DR industry in the next few years is getting out of the emergency, like you're getting paid a lot to sit around for emergencies to thousands of microtransactions every year. But luckily, we're seeing smart things everywhere and, you know, universal internet access and very cheap electronics and artificial intelligence that seem up to the challenge. But that's certainly going to be an area where innovation will be key. You know, to loop it back to 2222, which lets people who are not utilities play in this market. I think the, the challenge is going to be finding the consumers of electricity and the technologies that can adapt to the new reality and do it cheap enough. Energy efficiency is a really interesting one and a real challenge for wholesale markets. You know, first off, it's always the underestimated resource. It's just so important. You know, if you were to look at the history of the power grid, let's say since 2008, it's interesting, the Great Recession really changed a lot of things macroeconomically. But so let's say from like 2008 up until around now, electricity demand really didn't grow at all in most of the country, maybe in some areas where you had more air conditioning coming in, you know, or just population growth. But let's say electricity consumption per capita, at least, didn't, didn't grow much at all. And that, I mean, part of it was structural changes in the economy and industry moving offshore and so on. But a lot of it was energy efficiency and just that mundane sense of people don't really buy incandescent light bulbs anymore. Right. And, you know, air conditions and appliances got more efficient and so on. But really just those basic changes in electricity consumption. Probably I'd have to look this up to be sure, but it probably is not far off in that. We've avoided more power plants from energy efficiency in the last 10 years than we've built. Right. You, right. It's probably the single largest resource on the system, but because it's negative space, it's very hard to count. So. You've got to do everything you can to encourage energy efficiency. Although it would, it's interesting to think if the world I mentioned where energy is very cheap most of the time comes true, if we really do have a world where 70% of the time you have abundant carbon-free energy, do you need to be efficient? I don't know, but- Well, let's, let's hope we get there, right? Yeah, right, let's hope <laughs> we get there, but that's not the world we live in. The problem is like, how do you pay for it? How do you pay for non-consumption like, for instance, energy efficiency is great for resource adequacy, right? It reduces overall power load, better insulation spreads peaks around, right? It does all the things you want to have your grid that's, that's more reliable, better able to handle unforeseen circumstances and so on. But to, for the power grid to pay people for energy efficiency, it's always going to be relative to a counterfactual baseline, right? What would it have been if they hadn't done this? Which is why it's something that's really hard for markets to do. And you tend to see it more in this sort of activist state policy world. And I guess I mean activist in the sense of 
taxpayer money is going to fund some kind of activity or ratepayer money, as opposed to the regulatory world of FERC. So yeah, it's, it's right now in the power grids, we, we represent energy efficiency by saying if someone can show that they've got a group of consumers that are going to con- use less power than we've planned for, right? Show up with that, verify that's happening, and we'll pay you the difference, right? So that can happen in some, in some parts of the country. It, it doesn't work that well in most, but there are places, New England, I think, is doing pretty well, where you can show up to the New England grid operator, demonstrate you've built a certain amount, you're going to reduce the demand for electricity by a certain amount, and you'll get paid this, the, on, the same, on similar terms to someone who built a power plant. Right. So I think that is a good model for energy efficiency. The implementation is rough because for EE, baselines are always going to be hard. But that's where we're at. Or alternately, the, the right path for EE might be to stick with the program model of look for government policies that are actually paying for EE. Because, again, avoided costs are just very hard to monetize. Looking to the future, what would you say are the most important steps that FERC and other stakeholders should take in order to support the growth of renewable energy and reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. Yeah, absolutely. First off, to just start, it's important to realize that FERC is not an environmental regulator, right? They, like all government agencies, they're a creature of statute. And the Federal Power Act, which is the thing that creates FERC and gives it all its authority, says you know their their goal is to create just and reasonable rates, and they have various goals about reliability, electric grid. So. Supporting the growth of renewable energy ex- in an explicit sense that you're used to like thinking about RECs is not FERC's mission. What I see FERC's goal is doing is eliminating hidden subsidies for fossil fuels, ensuring a level playing field where renewables are valued fairly, that their unique characteristics are not used as the basis for discrimination, and then acknowledge the reality of a renewables future, right? FERC has to acknowledge state policy if it can't make its own and ensure that the people who are planning the electrical grid, both doing the resource adequacy and building transmission are planning for a renewables future. So it is, it's support the growth of renewables is a good way to put it, right? FERC is not the one that makes renewables grow, but they do have to support it. So to make that into, into concrete steps, as I said, it's market rules that are fair, that in some cases do need to be adapted for the unique characteristics of renewables. It's resource adequacy planning that gets the value of renewables exactly right. You know, not too big, not too small, but does accurately figure out how many fossil fuel plants we can displace with renewables. That creates the right price incentives for the right kinds of clean energy, right? Do we need more storage? Do we need more solar? Do we need more EE? Do we need more DR? In, in wholesale market world, that all should come from price signals. So they've got to make sure that their markets send those and that everyone is able to respond. Again, I like the order 22-22 formation, that all resources can respond to the limits of their technical abilities. Right? So that's the level, level playing field part of FERC. The more proactive part is that FERC is or it oversees the entities that do transmission planning. And this is an area where there can be a little more room for activism from FERC in that, you know, there's a lot of different scenarios for the details of a low carbon grid, but a lot of them say that major transmission buildouts are very important, right? You've got the, you know, get renewables from renewable rich areas to places where they're needed. And then maybe less obviously, the bigger your grid, the 
the easier it is to manage renewable variability, right? I mean, you still do have, you know, continent-wide weather systems, so you still have to plan for them, but a lot of the renewable ups and downs that you can average out across North America are a lot less challenging than if you have to just average them out across your state, right? So there's and a variety of other reasons, but there's generally bigger is better in a low carbon grid. So FERC Cannon is working on now mandating that transmission planning gets more proactive and really looks at the future that FERC's not saying what the future is. States are, and maybe ultimately federal policy will. But whatever our, our electricity future is, first job is to make sure we're planning a transmission system that stays reliable and does things at least cost. Tom, this has been this has been great. I think uh, hopefully for our listeners, you've been able to break down some pretty complicated concepts into into thoughts and ideas that we can all put our arms around, and we really appreciate that. To close out our conversation, do you have any recommendations on? clean energy related books or policy papers or subscriptions, things that you go to or, or think our, our listeners would, would be interested in? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll um, should give you a twofer on this one. <laughs> First one is a book called The Power Brokers by Jeremiah Lambert. And just that's brokers with an S. It's not the one about Robert Moses, which is a history of the electricity industry in a series of case studies, you know, starting with, with Chicago and Com Edison up until Enron and even a few after that. That one's really interesting because there are so many features of our electricity system that if you ask why, the answer is just because history, right? You know, history just sort of fell that way and that's what we have to deal with. So just understanding like the stories that led to our power grid looking like it is are just absolutely critical. So that would be one I'd recommend. And then, you know, in lighter form, if you don't want a whole book, there was an art, a 2021 article on the Atlant in the Atlantic called, Unfortunately, I Care About Power Lines Now by Robertson Meyer. A quick read, but um, just I found it hysterical and just gives you really good insight into what the electricity wonk world is like and the kinds of problems we deal with. Tom, thanks so much for coming on. This has been super interesting. I'm going to close out by saying if you have a question or topic idea, we'd love to hear it. Email us at newgeneration at americanefficient.com or send us a tweet at makeusefficient. If you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love the feedback and it helps new listeners find the show. Music